I just, you know, gave it to you guys. And what I'm going to do is use that uh, for most of our time here this morning as a, as a roadmap as we're moving through his life. Those, that's the, these are the high points, um, most of which I'll say something about. Not all of them, but, but most of them. Uh, but I am going to start with just a little bit of um, introduction stuff just to kind of whet your appetite, because I know, you know, it's... it's uh, 9.35 on a Sunday morning, you're doing well just to be in here, I'm asking you to try and hang with me and, and at least look, feign interest in this, the biography of this man, and so I'm going to actually try and gin up some interest uh, in this man by uh, giving you some introductory stuff uh, as we get rolling. But uh, let, let me first start and, and pray. We, we don't want to go any further uh, without having done that. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Uh, for allowing us to be here this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, the life and work of John Gresham Machen, uh, one of our older brothers in the faith um, from nearly a, a century ago. Uh, a slightly different time, but not so different than ours, certainly almost the same place. Uh, we thank you for how we um, share so much with the saints that have gone before us and are all around us, uh, the most essential things uh, we do share. And uh, we uh, ask that you would help us to see how the gospel light shines through this man's life, um, give us encouragement in our own poor hearts, uh, that we might see how your faithfulness, more of your faithfulness to your people uh, through the ages in all kinds of, of different ways and contexts. Uh, that it might bolster our hope and courage uh, in our own day. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so first I'm going to kind of start off with some lasting legacy. Oh, yeah, that is, that's not C.S. Lewis with hair. Uh, that's J. Gresham Machen. Uh, I'm sure that's a um, posed shot there, though certainly he did read a lot. Um, he's probably about, I'm going to guess, uh, early 40s there. Uh, by the time he gets to his mid-40s, he's certainly graying out significantly a lot, I have no doubt, because a lot, was, a lot of what was going on in his life at the time. That we'll get to in a minute. Lasting legacy. The first thing that people point out in terms of his lasting legacy would be the two institutions that he was instrumental in founding, one being Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and the other being a whole denomination known as the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, Westminster was founded in 1929, the OPC in 1936. Now, beyond that, we have to talk about persons in terms of a legacy. And I'm just going to talk about the Westminster graduates here for a minute. When you just think in terms of individuals that that school has churned out uh, through the years, I, I have a, just a, a short list uh, that you might be interested in hearing. Alistair Begg, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, Philip Riken, Francis Schaeffer. And our own Austin Royal, but yeah, I was going for the big names, not, not to play down Austin by any stretch. Then you think in terms of that's kind of a, a direct effect that Machen has upon certainly American evangelicalism, uh, but then you could say and there's an indirect effect as well when you consider all the men and women that have graduated through that school and gone to other schools and then trained a whole host of others, of which I know I am a beneficiary of. Um, one of the men that studied and, and not just studied under, but, but labored with uh, Machen was a guy by the name of John Murray. And John Murray was one of the 
instructors of several of my professors at Covenant. So I, I stand, you know, indebted at the very least uh, to, to Machen, I know personally. Um, writings, his scholarly works could not have been ignored in his day. Even those who utterly opposed him were offended by what he said couldn't ignore his scholarship. Uh, his radio addresses, you can buy collections of those uh, that I'm going to talk about when we get to the end, of books that you can buy by him today. Just wonderful stuff. I mean, it, it speaks to the brilliance of the man. You know, sometimes you, you hear this say that you can tell the, the degree to which someone grasps material and their ability to bring it down from way up here in the stratosphere, down here where most of us can under, understand something. And Machen was incredibly gifted uh, at that. He would go uh, uh, periodically for stretches of weeks doing these radio programs there in Philadelphia for the whole public uh, to hear. It was really, really something uh, back there in the 20s and uh, early 30s. So I guess it was during the 30s mostly. Uh, some personal things that aren't, I just felt like I had to say about Machen that aren't really worked into the outline, the, uh, the timeline uh, at all. So here's a few things you might be interested in knowing. He testified before Congress against the establishment of the Department of Education. There was no Department of Education back in those times. Machen was, in many ways, politically speaking, he did not get into politics, but his own political affinities, he was somewhat of a libertarian. And he certainly did not enjoy the federal government getting involved in, in anything any more than it, than it needed to. And so he was there, if you can imagine, the seminary professor testifying before Congress uh, as to why the Department of Education was just a bad idea. Well, that tells you the stature at which he was held in his, in his day. I mean, when things happened regarding Machen, he was sometimes on the front page of uh, newspapers around the country. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, related to his libertarian ideas, he was once cited for jaywalking in the city of Philadelphia and spent years uh, protesting that ticket before the city council of Philadelphia saying that he thought jaywalking was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard of. Let us walk where we want to walk. Uh, that, that's kind of you know, a little flair there on him. Uh, along those lines also, in terms of his convictions about things, he was an ardent conversation, conversationist, conservationist. Uh, in particular, he had a, a, a fondness that he had for Mount Desert Island, the Acadian National Forest up in Maine. Uh, the Park Service was beginning to kind of come into its own in the 20s and 30s, and Machen was appalled at the way he saw them turning the Acadian National Forest into what he said was a city park, as opposed to preserving it and, and, and letting it be. And he wrote quite a lot, and there's a lot of, uh, still today, you can find on the, on the internet some of these editorial letters that he would write uh, and, and things to different uh, people of influence around the country that might have some say in this. He was a lifelong bachelor. Speaking of Maine, his... Uh, Family vacations as he was growing up, and even in later years, they would go to Seal Harbor, Maine, and there he met the one romance of his life. However, she was a Unitarian, so therefore didn't go anywhere. Uh, their, their correspondence uh, was continued on through the rest of their lives. The, the friendship continued on for the rest of their lives, but it certainly never went any further than that because she was what? A Unitarian. So that really wasn't going to work for, for Machen. Um, another thing that, again, doesn't really show up in this timeline, except when you do the math. When you look at the year he was born and the year that he died, 
He died at age 55. He burned himself out is what it came down to. Um, John Piper in his biographical writings about Machen points out that perhaps uh, Machen's story is something of a warning to us of the need to pace ourselves and the need to, to be willing to listen to others in our lives and actually might even say have others in our lives. Machen was somewhat isolated in, in some respects. Uh, his personality was such that some said that really was only his closest friends that could endure him. Uh, that was something of his tenacity and, and his, his stubbornness. And uh, his friends urged him not to go on this long-speaking engagement tour in North Dakota in late December. See where this is going? And he's already exhausted at the, before he's even gotten on the train. And he wouldn't listen. And he ended up catching pneumonia and dying. We'll talk about that later. Um, Stephen Nichols, in his bio, points out that uh, Machen is a rather unlikely hero. His upbringing is rather posh, very wealthy family. Uh, he's certainly a child of privilege as he's growing up. And um, as he's going through his late teens and early 20s, there's some, you see something of an ambivalence about him. He's a directionless, a rudderlessness about him in terms of what is he going to do with his life? And it's just kind of surprising to, to think that here's this kid of privilege, has no sense of direction, he's got this uh, uh, eccentric disposition, and it's hard to imagine that he's the guy that the Lord uses in the way that he does in the battles that will uh, come ahead uh, for him in his life. And when I said the, his eccentricities, his students loved him for a lot of different reasons, one of which was some of these weird habits that he had. Sometimes as he was just trying to think and, and maybe even stumped by a question that somebody, you know, stumped the chump there in the classroom setting, he would just go up to a wall and just start going like this, like a woodpecker. Not, not hurting his head, but that was just kind of one of the things he would do. Another thing, while his Greek students would be parsing their words out loud in the class, taking turns to do that, Machen would just sit there and read a newspaper as they're doing that, and then he would, you know, hit, you know, just, just correct them. They would thought, well, he's not paying attention. Well, he's very much paying attention. He just he can multitask. He's reading a newspaper, and he's listening to their Greek parsing all at the same time. All right, last thing before we get going here is his favorite hymn, Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We're going to be singing that this morning in the worship service. All right, here we go. Timeline. Coming of age, 1881 to 1919. Born July 28, 1881. In Baltimore, Maryland, his father was Louis Machen. Louis Machen was a Harvard Law School graduate. He built a successful law practice out of nothing, uh, really did quite well for himself there in the city of Baltimore. His mother, Mary Gresham, was from, uh, Gresham rather, was from Macon, Georgia. She was from a family of great means because of railroad money and cotton mill money. Uh, she was deeply devoted to books and all things literature. In fact, she wrote herself. She was an author of a book called The Bible in Browning, Victorian uh, poet. And uh, that was a major, it was not just kind of a self-publishing thing, you know, get on Amazon and no. I mean, this was a legit publisher. She was known for this. This is the air that uh, Machen is breathing. I mentioned money. At age 21, he inherited $50,000. Now, that's in those days' money. I didn't do the inflation calculations to figure out what that would be today. 
Uh, but when you, maybe you can get something of a gauge when you consider that his first annual salary as a professor at Westminster was $2,000. So at age 21, he's inheriting a sum as 25 times his annual salary. And when his father died, he inherited another $250,000. He's a man of means. He was also very generous. This is how he was able to fund so many different ministries. He, his finances were instrumental in starting Westminster. And a lot of publications that were churned out through his, his uh, financing, uh, that stuff, to just, just free of charge to, to other people. He was the son of Southern culture. You know, his mama, they're from Macon. Baltimore, I know it's in Maryland, but at least in those days, that was a Southern town. It really was. Though it's north of the Mason-Dixon line, culturally, Baltimore, very much a Southern town. Now, as with any heritage, as with any culture, that has its advantages and its disadvantages, right? No matter where you're from, there are pluses and there are minuses, and that's the kind of stuff that Machen is bringing to the table. He is uh, the middle child of three brothers. There's Arthur Jr., John Gresham, and Thomas. These three boys were raised with the Bible, with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and Pilgrim's Progress. That was, again, the air that these boys uh, breathed as they were growing up there in the Gresham home. Uh, From early on, it was clear that uh, little John had a future as a scholar he was always ranking quite high with his, with his marks and his ranking there in his classes, in particular when it came to the classics. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, like the ancient Greeks and, and reading in the original languages. We're talking in high school. And, and if you guys can imagine that, I can't. I can't imagine how you guys could either. Um, all right, January 4th, 1896. You see there in your... Um, map there. He becomes a confessing member. It means that he joins. He joins the Franklin Street Presbyterian Church as a conf- uh, communing member of that church. 1898 to 1901, he attends John Hopkins University. Not surprising, he doesn't go too far from home. He's there in Baltimore. He studies the classics. That continues on. He's excelling at this. As a graduation present, when I graduated high school, my parents gave me luggage. And I, I, I kind of took a hint at that point. Time to get on the road, son. Um, Machen's parents gave him an extended tour to Europe. Okay, that's the Schwartz home and the Machen home. And uh, there he went, and he just lapped it up. And that was one of several trips over the course of his life that he took to Europe. I think there were five or six. And he was deeply taken, greatly impressed with not just the museums of the great cities that he visited, but also the mountains Time and time again, Machen is just, he's hearkening back just to the awe that he feels there in particular with the Alps, and just drawn to the, the, the majesty of these, these, uh, these places. And again, he's writing of that, sometimes um, uh, writing uh, some articles, I think it was for the earliest versions of Christianity Today uh, that he wrote some articles about that on. Okay. Uh, 1901 to 1902, he undertakes graduate studies at Johns Hopkins in the classics, and he goes on to the University of Chicago, international law and banking. What's up with that? I told you, he was ambivalent. He's aimless. He's rudderless. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life, okay? And so he's just kind of adrift here. Of course, you got the money, so why not? Just, Just go to the University of Chicago. 
and get a degree in international law and, and banking. Sure, why not? Um, in 1902 through 1905, he attends Princeton University and Princeton Theological Seminary. He is not, don't be mistaken here, he is not in any way thinking about ordination to ministry. Letter to his father. The ministry I am afraid I can't think of. He just wants to study philosophy and theology and just spend a little bit of time at, at doing that. He is, uh, that's, uh, I know I said earlier he's quite a brilliant kid, but he is not consumed by academics by any stretch. Uh, he is really interested in Princeton football and Princeton baseball. And he was willing to skip a class or two in order to watch and or participate in, in those. Uh, another, another letter, uh, I doubt this was to his parents. I don't know, maybe it was. If we could only lower our average temperature about 15 degrees, how much more I could accomplish? Hated afternoon classes because the afternoon was when he wanted to go out and play sports and be out with his buddies. He was certainly studious, so much so. Uh, but, okay, I didn't mention this. Woodrow Wilson. You guys know Woodrow Wilson, a president, the, the president of the United States back during World War I. Woodrow Wilson at one time was the, pres the, uh, yeah, the president of Princeton before he became governor of New Jersey and then became president of the United States. And he was also a friend of the Machen family. And so there's Uncle Woodrow uh, there as president of, that's a little flippant, but, uh, but there uh, as president of the school, invited John Gresham to uh, lunch or dinner, but Gresham had to decline because he had a sermon to preach uh, the next day. So he is not, you know, just ducking classes um, willy-nilly. He, he, he is honing his, his craft, I guess you could say. 1905 publishes his first article, New Testament Account of the Birth of Jesus in the Princeton Theological Review. Um, do the math. How old is he? 1905. Born in 1881. Hello? Hello? Thank you. Very good. So I'm just checking to see if you're awake. Just, just, just the, I'll throw the math questions out there every now and then. That's kind of an index as to how, how you're doing. So he's already publishing in academic journals, and this particular uh, topic is something that really gets his interest and uh, comes up again, and actually in some major writing years later. 1905 to 1906, he undertakes graduate study at Marburg and Göttingen in Germany. Now, he's been somewhat aimless and rudderless in regards to his future planning and his career, that begins to spill over into now some spiritual unrest. He is beginning to really wrestle with spiritual doubts uh, for the first time. That was, it's not that that hadn't ever, he had never experienced anything like that before, but it really, it's like you take, he's got a few coals now, and because of who he's studying under there in Germany, now we're throwing gas on those coals. Um, really thrown by a gentleman, a, professor in Germany by the name of Wilhelm Hermann. In a letter to his father, Machen writes, I can't criticize him. I have been thrown all into confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. But the thing with Hermann was, he didn't really believe the Bible is true. It, it, this, what's throwing Machen is, he's seeing this, he's coming from a place of deep conviction in the veracity, the truthfulness, and the authority of the word, 
but maybe not as much spirituality and love for Christ as he would have liked, he gets to the other side of the pond and he sees this love for Christ, but no conviction when it comes to the Word. And it's, it's blowing his mind. And he has no idea uh, what, what to do with this. It's piety without roots. And he can't figure this out. And it's really messing with his head and his heart. He is longing not for intellectualism without faith, but nor is he interested in faith without intellectual merit. He's looking for a fusion, an intellectually informed and compelling faith. Head and heart, heart and head, yoked together. That's really what he's longing for. And he's struggling a great deal uh, with this. Um, this time, this period of 1905-1906, gave him great insight and understanding that would serve him so well in the years to come in the battles that he would be engaging in it, and with modernism and liberalism back on the other, back here in America, and, and, and its rise. Um, in a letter, I'm going to read to you here, excerpt from a letter, making this point: his his understanding, his sympathy with others who are struggling with the same doubts. Some of us have been through such struggle ourselves. Some of us have known the blankness of doubt, the deadly discouragement, the perplexity of indecision the vacillation between faith diversified by doubt and doubt diversified by faith. He had sympathy for the doubter. What he had no sympathy for was dishonesty, was saying you believed it when you didn't. That, that he had zero sympathy for whatsoever. And he, he I mean, he was a, a, pit, a pit bull when, when it came to that point. Uh, again, comes up, comes up later. How does he endure? How does he make it through this time? He says, in his own words, through the support of his parents, the letters, the letters that he is uh, exchanging with them over the years. So their love for him uh, is, is quite evident. Here's a quote from uh, his mother, a letter that she wrote in January of 06. But one thing I can assure you of, that nothing that you could do could keep me from loving you, nothing. Now, this, she knows what he's experiencing. This is not just mom saying, I love you. This is mom saying, I love you in the midst of my son's spiritual doubts and struggles, okay? Perhaps I worry too much, but my love for my boy is absolutely indestructible. Rely on that whatever comes, and I have faith in you too, and believe that the strength will come to you for your work, whatever it may be, and that the way will be opened. So uh, some love and some boldness there expressed by her, his mother. What's interesting is at some point in there, in their exchange, and this is, of course, where you get into the limitations of um, letter writing, especially in the, the time the lag that it would take to, to write it, send it, receive it, send a reply, and that kind of thing. A misunderstanding took place at some point between he and his mother. He writes the letter to his father because he knows from a letter his mother has sent that she's trying to talk him out of staying in Germany any longer. And his impression from that letter is, as he relates to his father in a letter, is that she's afraid that he can't handle it, that it's just going to prove to be too much for him. That's, that's what he's thinking she's saying, but that's not what she's saying. And she, to correct him, writes a 25-page letter. Maybe a little overkill, not sure. A 25-page letter. And in there, she says this, among other things. I'm not going to read the 25 pages. This is just, this is just a paragraph. 
My son, my whole life has been a protest against the very position which you suppose me to take. When I was 16, I rebelled against the trampling of the intellect. I could not have a blind faith. This required some boldness and independence, for I was little more than a child, and I lived in an environment that discouraged freedom of thought. All my life long, I have held that free investigation is the only way to climb to the mountaintop of intelligent faith. I do not and never have looked at free probing for truth as anything to be afraid of. I am an apostle of the opposite position. Certainly, if a man is to be a scholar and a teacher, he cannot investigate too much. So, steadfast love and courage on the part of his parents, that's how he endures. Lighter observation in terms of his time in Germany, then we'll move on to the next thing. I think I mentioned this to a couple of you guys in the after class uh, last week. Um, uh, one of the things that Machen said after his time there, as much as he did love his, his time there, is that the Germans would have done very well to have had a little bit more of these two things in their culture. One was the celebration of the Sabbath. I guess the Lutherans really weren't doing it. And secondly, American football. <clears throat> he felt like that would give them a sense of understanding fair play, which I guess he didn't think they had much of at the, at the time. Okay, 1906 to 1929. This is a big chunk there in your outline, and there's a lot that fits up under that. He serves on the faculty of Princeton Theological Seminary. Okay, so he's in Germany. He's in correspondence with, back with his professors at Princeton. He's offered a, he's actually offered places to go beyond it, but he, he takes this, and when in particular, because of his fondness there for Princeton and the, the affinity, the relationships and all. He's offered a one-year appointment in New Testament. 1907, he decides to stay. Things are settling down. As I said, very popular with the students because of his brilliance, his mastery, his ability to teach and relay these things. Saturday evenings, now, oh, he was like, a single guy. He's not living off campus. He's living on campus in the dorms. So he's mixing it up with the guys. And Saturday nights, John Gresham Machen was known to open his door to whoever wanted to come join him, fresh fruit and cigars. Strange combination, I know, but that's, uh, that's what it was. My idea, this is what a quote here in one of his letters, my idea of delight is a Princeton room full of fellows smoking. There you go. And he, we have just volumes and volumes of, of uh, his letters uh, to, to students that after they graduated, just staying in touch with them. You say, you, you, that's not going to happen unless there's affection and, and a real, you know, relationship established and continuing on through, through the years, and he delighted to, to spend time staying in touch with these young men. June 23rd, 1914, he is finally ordained in the Presbyterian Church in the USA. He has a lot of offers elsewhere uh, to, to leave Princeton. Uh, one school that really wanted him was Union Theological Seminary in my hometown, Richmond, Virginia. He said, nope, I'm a Princeton guy. Um, and uh, that's where he, he stayed. A little background, this is not in your outline, uh, but a little background, 1910 to 1915. This is going to, a theme, going to come back to this, okay? 1910 to 1915, The Fundamentals is published, okay? And what, you may have heard of the term fundamentalism. Maybe you've heard, heard of this, and, and usually it's used to describe well, we'll say if it's meant charitably, it's meant to describe someone who's a Bible-believing Christian. Usually it's not meant charitably, right? Got it? But that's where the idea comes from, that term. The fundamentals was a, a group, a, 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 how many volumes was it? Twelve volumes of paperback books 
um, distributed free to millions of people across the country. Uh, to, the idea was to counter the rising threat of liberalism in the churches. Okay? That's 1910 and 1915. It's important to have the understanding that that's happening in the background here. What were the fundamentals? There's different ways to, to do the list depending on where you read it, but it usually goes something like this. First, the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, his bodily resurrection, and his miracles. Okay, those were often I was referred to as the, and, and some people take the miracles out and say his, his return one day, depending again on the, on the list that you, that you look at. And those were the fundamentals that, that some were saying, look, these things, if we lose these things, we're going to lose it all uh, in the end. That, that, that was the idea. All right, that's what's going on in the background, just so you know. 1914 to 1915, Gresham publishes uh, uh, another book, A Rapid Survey of the Literature and History of New Testament Times. I, I, th- I love this title, Rapid Survey. I'm thinking it probably was too long to be that, but anyway. May 3rd, 1915, he's inaugurated as assistant professor at Princeton. December 19th, 1915, his father, Arthur Webster Machen, dies. Uh, His father was 45 when he married his mother. His mother was 24. Um, But his father did live into his late 80s, so... uh, they did get a lot of time together, and they were quite close. So it was quite a blow there in December of 1915 when his father died. 1918 to 1919, Machen serves with the YMCA in France during World War I. And you're probably thinking, the YMCA, what, is he a swim instructor? No. In the YMCA in its earliest days uh, was, was much more than we think of today as being pretty much just a place that you go work out. Uh, it was the Young Men's Christian Association. That's, that's what it stands for. Um, Machen, the reason he's working for them is that he did not want to, sorry, Ron, he did not want to pursue the chaplaincy, Dave. Um, the reason being he was under the impression, I don't know if this was actually true at the time, but he was at least under the impression that he wanted to work with the enlisted men. That was where his heart was, and he was under the impression that as an officer, as a chaplain, he wouldn't be able to do that. Now, whether that was true at the time, I don't know, but that was why he did not uh, pursue the chaplaincy. He thought about being an ambulance driver, but the problem was by the time he started really seriously looking into that, they had so many people who were volunteering for that that those that were drivers now, thinking they were going to be ambulance drivers, were now driving munitions, and that was in no way what Machen was interested in. So he ends up working with the YMCA. The YMCA is offering education and literacy programs, guidance on moral issues and spiritual counseling, especially in wartime, World War I, running huts, canteens is what they were called. They would move where the soldiers were. You know, if the front is moving this way, then they're going that way. If the front is moving back this way, then they're moving back this way. They're, They're going where the battles are, And in those canteens, they are distributing food and cigarettes, coffee, and reading materials. And the way you could find those, I didn't know this, still looking into this just a few days ago, uh, was you you may notice this when you, next time you're looking around town and you see the Y or you're, you know, seeing it advertised, you may notice that upside down red triangle. That's how you found those canteens back then. That was the symbol way back in World War I. It's still used in some of their promotional literature still today, that, that symbol that upside-down red triangle. 
Machen supplemented the magazines that they were giving away at those canteens with his own personal library. Just giving books away if he needed to, or even just like a little mini library system where he would keep track of the American and French soldiers, because he's there in France, uh, serving in, in what was called the Army Zone. He's leading Bible studies. Uh, he is preparing hot chocolate. And this is before the days of instant hot cocoa. I mean, this is, you know, some of you could probably speak to what, how laborious that would have to be. And he's serving cups by the thousands per day because of the number of guys that are coming through there. So he's making it, and he's serving it, and he's got splattered chocolate all over his uniform, and that's what he looks like day in and, and, and day out. This is the Princeton man uh, serving in that place. Um, with bombs dropping around him, with gunfire, with the sound of these airplanes overhead. He comes back, he is no longer the quiet scholar enjoying a detached academic life. Roaring 20s, 1920 to 1929. 1921, he publishes, oh, he goes back to Princeton, just so you know, he's back at Princeton. Um, he's publishing The Origin of Paul's Religion, rigorous scholarship. This is a book that actually is still required reading in some seminaries uh, today. Uh, he is really, what he's trying to do in this book is refute the idea that somehow Christianity as a religion has its origin in Paul. That's uh, something that's kicked around sometimes. You know, Jesus was one thing, Paul took it to another, in another direction. In no way is that true, and that's what Machen is driving at uh, there in, in that work. February 16, 1921. Uh, his mentor, B.B. Warfield, dies. Maybe that's another Reformation Sunday. Uh, 1921, he's awarded a degree by Hampton Sydney, a small school back in Virginia. May 21, 1922, more background here. It's worth knowing. Uh, coming back to the fundamentals, Harry Emerson Fosdick preaches a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he does not mean to ask that question with a hopefulness there. He is like, I mean, he's in essence saying, oh, my Lord, I hope not, because he's standing on the other side. He is a Baptist pastor, liberal man, serving for years in a Presbyterian church in New York City, which tells you something about what was going on with the Baptists at the time and the Presbyterians, <laughs> right? There's, there's some strange stuff uh, happening here. Um, what he's pleading for is he, oftentimes, you see, if you read through the sermon, he is he's saying, okay, here's what the fundamentalists think. And here's what us more educated progressives think. And can't we all just get along? Let's find a third way. Let's make the tent of Christendom big enough that we can all just live there. But you understand what he's doing. In making that kind of argument, which is an argument oftentimes made today, he is utterly dismissing the convictions of the two sides. I know better, as the one watching you all, you stupid children, fighting like the parent. I know better. Now let's get along. Imposing his wisdom and understanding, and especially upon the conservatives. Really, that, that's really what he's saying. Is you guys need to play nice and, and stifle your, your convictions. Well, that comes up more and more as we go through this. Machen, did Machen consider himself a fundamentalist? Yes and no. Um, yes, in terms of he fully supported the fundamentals, but no, because he hated the term and what most people meant by it. I've, um, short quote here in a letter, 
along those lines, and there's some contemporary implications here, by the way. Uh, do you suppose that I do regret my being called by a term that I greatly dislike, a fundamentalist? Most certainly I do. But in the presence of a great common foe, I have little time to be attacking my brethren who stand with me in defense of the Word of God. What's the contemporary application? I would argue, off script, that given how abused the term evangelical is today, be careful who you let call you that. You may want to say, okay, by that, what do you mean? And don't go any further until you have a clear understanding of their definition, their under, that understanding. It's very much the same back in those days with fundamentalists. Uh, just, just a little, we can talk about that later, later if you want. That's just a, just a point I want to make here. Uh, so that's uh, 1922. 1923, this is the watershed year for Machen. So much is, is, is happening now. He publishes two major works that he's known for still today. Uh, one, New Testament Greek for Beginners. Seminary grads in the room. Did you guys have that for you? Luke, Dave, Ron? No? No? I guarantee it's still in the bookstores. Still, still RTS, Westminster Covenant. I know you can still find it there. It is used by some professors. I mean, there's, there's some you know, better ones that have come along. But back then, there, that was the best. Machen writes the textbook on understanding New Testament Greek. He writes it one out of his love of languages and two out of his experience in the classroom. He realizes he needs source material for his students to work with. So he writes, I mean, can you imagine, writing a grammar for New Testament Greek. This is the brilliance of this man. And it was used, it was the standard thing for decades. Uh, maybe up until, say, the, the, probably the, the 70s and 80s um, when some other things came out. Uh, so that would be one major work that came out. Another was... This one, though obviously it wasn't paperback at the time, Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. Now, you can get a sense of the, the theme by the title. He's saying that they are two different things. That's throwing the gauntlet down in the middle of the table. Uh, he's contending that the theological positions and ideology held by liberal Christian denominations and institutions so distinguishes them from historic Orthodox Christianity that they are actually two entirely different religions, two entirely different faiths that tragically and confusingly use the same language, but mean so same dictionary but different definitions. And it gets very confusing. What do you mean by Christ? What do you mean by faith? What do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by God? What do you mean by sin? And the, you know, again, definitions is huge in terms of its implications. Machen is pointing out here in this work that much of what's happening in the church is starting in Europe, it's coming over to, to our, part, our side of the pond in, in, uh, within liberal uh, seminaries and churches is a post-enlightenment anti-supernatural presupposition that has a suspicion. Okay, let me say that again. A, sorry. Post, you weren't paying attention anyway. So post-enlightenment, a post-enlightenment anti-supernatural presupposition. There, so this is what this means. Miracles can't be true because miracles don't happen. So when I read in the Gospels that Jesus heals someone, it can't happen because that doesn't happen, so there has to be another explanation. That's the lens. 
that you're bringing to, to the table. And it radically affects, infects your interpretation of, of the text. Um, they are, there is a rejection of the idea of the inspiration of Scripture and therefore the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and uh, that's what Machen is going after. Let me read you a quote here that I think makes it pretty clear. It has been observed thus far, this is 99 pages in, it has been observed thus far that liberalism differs from Christianity with regard to the presuppositions of the gospel, the view of God and the view of man, with regard to the book in which the gospel is contained, and with regard to the person whose work the gospel sets forth. It is not surprising, then, that it differs from Christianity in its account of the gospel itself. It is not surprising that it presents an entirely different account of the way of salvation. Liberalism finds salvation, so far as it is willing to speak at all of salvation, in man. Christianity finds it in an act of God. Another quote that quite pertinent for Reformation Sunday he has here in this book. The Church of Rome, Roman Catholicism, okay? The Church of Rome may represent a perversion of the Christian religion, but naturalistic liberalism is not Christianity at all. He got some people's attention. Made some friends. Made a lot of enemies. Made a lot of enemies. Um, his star is rising. Numer the speaking engagements are picking up rapidly. He's becoming a known commodity. Again, context, however, 1924, I don't think that's in your out. Yeah, it is. The modernists sign what's called the Auburn Affirmation. What is that? Some PC USA ministers gather together in Auburn, New York, not Georgia, they are getting together as a response to some conservatives who've gotten together earlier and prepared what was called the five-point deliverance, having to do with the fundamentals. And these PCUSA ministers, flocks of them, gather together to craft this statement, put their signatures on it, refuting those fundamentals. And then it's published in the newspapers. This is, you know, their answer, their response. The tension is, is rising here. Um, Machen, in response to that, publishes a book called What is Faith in 1925, which some would say is the something of a sequel to Christianity and liberalism. Also in 1925, he ceases to be what's called the stated supply. And in church speak, that means the, 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 a, a church doesn't have a senior pastor or a pastor on staff, so they hire somebody like an independent contractor, you might say, as a stated supply. You're our guy for a stated period of time, you'll supply the pulpit, stated supply, okay? Machen has served for some time as the stated supply uh, there at First Presbyterian in Princeton. In 1925, he steps down from that. Why? Uh, Ned Stonehouse, uh, one of the eminent biographers of, uh, of Machen, was a student of, of Machen uh, for a few years, described this period as the beginning of Machen's valley of humiliation. Here's what happens. He's serving a supply. There's this guy by the name of Harry Van Dyke, who was a literature professor at Princeton University, was a former Presbyterian minister, 
former U.S. ambassador and a renowned author and former member of this church, is so peeved at Machen and what he's been saying that he leaves the church, writes some editorials to the newspapers. Again, this is a different time where people cared in the newspaper about these things, okay? And says, what he does, the term is, I'm giving up my pew. Now, I think what that means is you actually had, you know, I know like informally there's like assigned seats in this room on Sunday morning. Y'all have some fun. Sit somewhere else today, okay, in the second hour, all right? But, but in those days, you know, in some churches, you actually had an assigned pew. And in some tragic cases, you paid for it. That's another story. Um, well, anyway, this guy, Van Dyke, says, I'm giving up my pew because of him. And he goes public about it, and Machen decides, okay, that's enough. I'm done. This is causing, there's, there's too much, there's too much, it's, it's not worth it, truly. It's too much of a distraction of the gospel. I'm stepping back. Um, and, but in the meantime, makes the point with, in, in, in some writings with some others that the real issue here is not the modernists and it's not the liberals, but it's the moderates. It's the fence-sitters that Machen coined a term. They, they were the indifferentists. The indifferentists. They would not take a stand. And so maybe some of you have been around people like that, and you're kind of, you're under the gun, you're under pressure by, you know, a certain group of people in a certain setting, and, you know, behind closed doors, Bob is willing to say, oh, you're, you know, I'm behind you, I got it, blah, 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 blah. When it comes to actually voicing something, they say nothing. They say nothing. They have no spine. And that's exactly what Machen is saying is the real problem here. Not just the controversy, but that there are so many who won't speak up. They won't take a stand. 1926, he is appointed, this is in the Valley of Humiliation, he is appointed as chair of apologetics by the board at Princeton, but the General Assembly, the church that you know, is overseeing Princeton, refuses to ratify the appointment. Now, in years past, that's just a formality. Princeton, you do what you want to do. We're cool with it. That's fine. But see, uh-uh-uh-uh, not now. Machen's on people's radar. So they delay the appointment, confirming it, and instead decide to appoint a study committee to figure out what's wrong with Princeton. And that sets in motion some stratagems to actually transform the board at Princeton to send it in a more liberal direction. And Princeton Seminary has never been the same since. From this point, this point, you can, tr- you can actually trace it back uh, right, right here. It's a, cr- a critical juncture in all that, 1926. 1928, he's awarded a degree at Wheaton College. 1929, Princeton Theological Seminary, I mentioned the strategy. It's actually reorganized in terms of the boards. Machen goes on record as saying, old Princeton is dead. And he resigns. He steps down. And then he works with a circle of supporters and his financial means, remember I mentioned that? And they create, they form Westminster Theological Seminary there in Philadelphia. Uh, Inaugural address, September 25th, 1929. This is what he says. No, my friends, though Princeton Seminary is dead, the noble tradition of Princeton Seminary is alive. Westminster Seminary were seminary will endeavor by God's grace to continue that tradition unimpaired. All right, the final conflicts, which is good because we're in our final minutes. 1930, 
1937. 1930, he publishes The Virgin Birth of Christ, standard scholarly defense of this crucial orthodox doctrine for decades to come. Required reading in a lot of seminaries for decades to come. October 13, 1931, his mother dies. His mother was his biggest fan. Remember, he never married. This is the woman in his life. And, and she has scrapbooks that she's been keeping on her boy for all these years. Boxes full of scrapbooks of the news clippings and, and all, all such, and the awards that, that she has. Mason writes, on the day of her funeral, my mother seems, to me at least, to have been the wisest and best human being I ever knew. 1933, a uh, study, a book is released called Rethink, it's not Machen's, it's context, Rethinking Missions, a layman's inquiry after 100 years. That's released. Now, what's the big deal about that? Because it's widely distributed, widely supported in the PCUSA, calling for a paradigm shift in missions based on the idea that Christianity is not the true religion. And so missionaries should be taking a synchronistic approach as they go over overseas. Machen says, this is more about seeking truth than presenting it when it comes to mission work. In the midst of all this, you have a woman, very famous lady at the time, Pearl Buck. She is a Presbyterian missionary to China, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932 for the Good Earth. Gladdened by that report, she... She's just one of the missionaries. The reason I bring her up, she's one of the missionaries, one of the most famous missionaries within the PCUSA, and she has publicly rejected the deity of Christ and discarded the need of the gospel as a missionary for the PCUSA, and the denomination is okay with this. And Machen is not okay with that. And he's saying, why are we sending money as a denomination to support works like that under convictions like that? And so he and some others found what's called the Independent Board of Foreign Missions because they're trying to keep the money going in a, get the money going in a better direction. Well, because of that, he's put on trial within the PCUSA. Now they have a spine. Now they'll stand up to something, you see. Now that you've thwarted our authority or, or thumbed your nose at our authority, we're going to put you on trial. And they do, and within two years, he is defrocked, meaning... He's lost his ministry credentials. And those that were, were with him in, in the course of, of that, that then sets in motion, June 1936, he becomes the first moderator of the New Presbyterian Church of America. You're like, I thought we were the Presbyterian Church in America. That's right, we are. That was the Presbyterian Church of America, which because of a lawsuit two, three years later, had to change its name to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of America, which is now known today as the OPC. But that was not its original name. If you want to really get confused, if you like wiring diagrams, I can give you the wiring diagram of just the Presbyterian churches in the United States since the colonial times going up to about today. It is wonderful reading and very confusing. So, okay, that's... Now, he's in the OPC all of six months because he's dead, New Year's Day, 1937. Again, this is what I alluded to earlier. Uh, despite, so, so it's Christmas break. He's on the other end of a long semester, you know, full-time, doing his thing there at, at uh, Westminster. He's doing these radio addresses. 
that people can, can listen to and you can, again, read the transcripts of, wonderful readings still today. Despite all the objections of his friends who can see how physically exhausted he is, despite all that, he gets on a train. Oh, by the way, he hated planes. Here's a quote. All I can say is that I wouldn't lower myself by going up in one of those stupid, noisy things. I mean, it's 1936. Um, so he goes, rigorous speaking schedule. It's brand new OPC churches up there in North Dakota. Well, not OPC, but whatever it was then. He's trying to help them out. North Dakota, late December. It's 20 below. He catches pneumonia. He knows he's dying. He's in a Roman Catholic hospital. And his final recorded words, we don't know if this is his final words, but his final recorded words are a telegram to his dear friend and co-worker, John Murray. And he said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And that's it for his time on earth. He's buried in Baltimore, where it all began. But it continues. There were books, works of his published posthumously, um, The Christian View of Man, God Transcendent, What is Christianity? And again, like I said at the beginning, the, the lasting impact just of, you just want to say just of, the institutions that he founded, the OPC and Westminster Seminary. So there you go. Jay Gresham Machen, and we have two minutes. Any questions? I gave you everything I know, so I don't really have any answers, but do you have any questions? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. Why have we never heard of him? Um, I, there's probably several answers for that, Debbie. It's a great question. Uh, I've thought about that myself. One would be as uh, Robert Godfrey. He's a church history guy at Westminster in California. I was listening to an address he did on, on Machen uh, some years ago. And it was recorded. And he said he has a friend who studies ancient church history. And this guy's quip was, when it comes to history, anything... 150 years ago and forward is just journalism. <laughs> You've got to go back much further before you can start talking about history. So that's one thing. Uh, another is, um, you know, it's the blessing and bane of, of lots of, of, of publishing. You know, we've got lots and lots of books. That's beautiful. That, that, lots of great authors to read today, and that's fantastic. That's great. It also has a way of crowding out the best that perhaps we should be, you know, going back to uh, again and, and not forgetting. You know, like, again, that's not C.S. Lewis, but, but something that C.S. Lewis said years ago in, in a, in a um, brief essay uh, on uh, the reading of old books was the name of the, the essay, and he made reference to our chronological snobbery. So if it, if it wasn't written in just the last five years, it's dated. Anything else? Yeah. 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 Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. 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 Great point, uh, and I get it. The thing is, is that, and I don't have an answer for what I'm about to say, an explanation for why, or, or why what I'm going to say, I think is actually true. Not all of his machins were, all, all of his machins, not all of machins' writings were at the scholarly level. Some of them were actually meant for the more popular level. In fact, Christianity and liberalism was meant for a broader audience than just at the scholarly level. Now, I'll admit, it, it, it's some tough sledding in areas there, but I, I would dare say that a lot, most, if not all of you, could, could handle it. Um, it's, 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 and his, his, what he's saying is completely pertinent to today. It's, it's absolutely, um, completely so. The other thing I would say is, and I'll just close with this, and that is just um, citing two titles, you know, the radio addresses, the transcripts of the radio addresses I mentioned that you can still get. Uh, one is called The Christian View of Man, still in print, short chapters, great reading, The Christian View of Man and the Person of Christ. Uh, I mean, I have benefited immensely just by, I mean, Machen's way of making, you know, this stuff way up here, bringing it down to my level is, he, he's brilliant and, and so good. Head and heart, head and heart. That's, that's, that's where he was. Let me pray. We've got to stop and uh, uh, shift gears here. Father, thank you again, for your work through John Gresham Machen, your work in his life. Uh, we don't worship him. We marvel at what you did in and through him, and still do, in, so, in and through so many others, and even in and through us. And we ask that you would encourage our hearts all, all the more so, um, this morning for what we have just scraped up against here in this man's life. We pray in your name. Amen.